Beloved, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Exodus 7 is where we are in our study. If you are here visiting and do not have a copy of God's Word, look in front of you. You'll see one in the racks there. Please follow along in there with us, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and the seventh chapter of that book. Last week, of course, we opened chapter 7 of Exodus, and a look at those opening verses, which richly present the sovereignty of God in full scope. Sovereignty of God in full scope. Before we review what those first few verses show us, let's read again our passage in full. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. The word of the Lord says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. These opening verses of chapter 7 contain, as you can see, a lot of acts, a lot of resolve, and a lot of development. Yet, for as much as they contain, and we've just seen that, there is little doubt who presides over it all. God Almighty, God alone. It does not matter the event, God is in control. Yes, God's word here, as it does consistently throughout, makes clear that God is sovereign. Here again, and to set the table for our review, we're reminded of what exactly that means. God's all-powerful rule and absolute control over all things in his creation. That's what we mean by sovereignty. Which, as we saw last week, and we'll see again this week, by the way, twice in this account, the back end, that God's sovereignty extends from heaven's heights to the human heart. It's a comprehensive, sweeping sovereignty. And again, beloved, I pray that such all-encompassing control of our God, where, hear it, every variable, every act, every king, even the most minute molecule in the universe, all of it is in God's sovereign hand, moving it as he wills. I pray, church, I pray that that is a comfort to you today. I pray that it is a comfort by way of review to know that God is sovereign over positions. God is sovereign over positions. Positions like Moses, remember? The lowly sheep herder some 40 years. And positions like Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the time. The lowliness of Moses' place or the loftiness of Pharaoh's position matters not. Not to Almighty God who said this, remember the opening verses of chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
church, position is God's business. Position is God's business. God says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. God says, lowly shepherd, I will position you well above Pharaoh. Amazing. More than the position of earthly kings in that court, you will stand like God. Westmount, do you see the implications for us today? Because it doesn't matter It doesn't matter under God, the earthly position. Government official, medical officer, PSW, teacher, we can go on and on and on. Regardless of position, God positions them all. And all positions are in His hand. Remember Daniel 2.21, note it. It is God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Is that not sovereignty? Yes, the comfort to know that God is sovereign over every position. That was but one. Also, the peace to know that this. Secondly, God is sovereign over peoples. That's what we saw. God is sovereign over peoples. In verse 3, God says, look at it, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Remember, that expression, that reality itself was nothing new, reiterated actually from chapter 3 and chapter 4. We discussed the plain sense of that speaking for itself and the fact that this is not an isolated incident. We've mentioned this a few times. Pharaoh is not the only heart that God hardens when you read Scripture. Last week we added to that the purpose that we see here in God's sovereignty often. The purpose. And that is a purpose, a divine will at work. This is the why. Remember verse 4. Look at it again. Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then here it is. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God hardens Pharaoh's heart here in Exodus for the expressed purpose of deliverance. You see that? To deliver. More so, we see here that God in His sovereign, almighty power does whatever is needed for the good of His people. Do you see that? In His sovereign power, He does whatever is needed for your good. That's how our God operates. Again, Westmount, I trust that this is a peace to you. And yes, let it be. Let it be. And if we need it anymore, the ultimate purpose is here too. Consider again verse 5. God says that through this act of sovereign power, look, Egypt will know what? That I am the Lord. You see that? Sovereign action for the express purpose of making God Almighty known. And again, this is the theme of God's word, his mighty acts in the Old Testament. Remember the hardening of King Sihon's heart. Again, we've looked at that, Deuteronomy 2.30. We are told it's for the purposes of deliverance, for the good of God's people, and the sovereign judgment on all those nations. Remember, we looked at Ezekiel last week. Why? Over and over again, God says, this hardening, that judgment, so that they will know that I am the Lord. There is purpose in God's sovereignty. Over and over again, God is sovereign over all people, all nations, for his purpose, for his glory. And Westmount, may I remind you that modern people are no different. We sit here in Peterborough, not removed from ancient people. God is no less sovereign over our hearts than these people here in Peterborough today. All the hearts, in fact, in the year 2020 are exactly the same under the sovereign hand of God. Still sovereign is our Lord over every heart today. And yes, here it is. This is what it must, must bubble up in us. The peace to know that God is sovereign over all people. And then one more we looked at last time, the reality that God is sovereign over plans. Sovereign over plans. We commented on the turning point in verse 6. Let's look at it again. Moses and Aaron did so. They did, look at it, just as the Lord commanded them. 
Moses, his plans are a distant memory at this point. Remember, whatever thought he had about living out his final days in Midian as a quiet shepherd in Jethro's house, they're gone. Moses, those are fine and good, and we would say noble plans, but those are not God's plans. And along with that vanishing, note what else is gone, the protests, the excuses, those are gone. Remember, we noted that from here on out, a very different Moses emerges. A Moses not of protest or procrastination, but a Moses of what? Obedience. Obedience. What a marvel. In spite of all Moses' resistance and protest in Westmount, did we not see a lot? In spite of all of that, God still had his way. Here it is. God's sovereign will was irresistible, like it always is. God's sovereign will is irresistible. And that's because God is sovereign over plans, all of them, Westmount. Remember this too, like everything under a sovereign God is nothing new. Proverbs 16.9, note it. The heart of man plans his way, and don't we? And don't we? But the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, we have our plans, and then there's God's plans. They have the final say. Yes, we have plans and we make plans, but they are not the final plans. Those belong to God alone. The final word in all plans is, again, the domain of Almighty God. Remember James, he reminds us, the book of James and our plan making, James 4.15, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we will love and do this or that. Yes, that's it, Christian, if the Lord wills. Yes, the comfort and peace and reality that God is sovereign over plans. And that's where we left off last time. So we'll just pick right back up from that point with our next point. God is also sovereign over power. God is sovereign over power. Look at verse 8 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. There is a bookend here that we need to address first and foremost. It is a detail that frames this section, and one we've seen so much in these early chapters of Exodus that if we're not careful, we may very well overlook Look again at the beginning of verse 9. Look at exactly how it's phrased there again. Verse 9, when Pharaoh says to you. Simply, the Lord boldly proclaims that this is what Pharaoh's going to say. Do you see that? The Lord doesn't even mince words. He says, when he says this to you, that's foretelling. And what we're about to read, beloved, confirms that that's exactly what happens. And we'll get there in a moment. But we just need to set up this book end here because we're going to end with that later as we'll see in this passage. This is our God. God is not bound by the what ifs. God says when this happens, when this happens, this will happen. You can be sure that this will happen. That's our God. We'll come back to that. Okay, how do we know that Pharaoh does indeed ask for a sign? Well, we simply look at the account. Look at verse 10. God has laid out how it's going to go. And look at this. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. In other words, it's all happening. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Moses and Aaron are again back in front of Pharaoh. And look at it. Doing just as God commanded. And again, how do we know? How do we know that he's looking for proof? It's because he has asked and he's thrown down the staff, which we're going to look at in a moment. Again, this time, it's not just a word from the Lord. Remember in chapter 5, verse 1, it was just the word from the Lord, let my people go here now in this next encounter. This is a sign from the Lord, and this sign, by the way, is one we're very familiar with, the staff becoming a serpent, right? Do you remember that was the sign from Moses himself? Do you remember chapter 4, those opening verses? And then what about at the end of that chapter? What was the cause of the people of Israel, Israel collectively worshiping and wanting to say, yes, we bow to our Lord? It was the signs before them. Moses came with the word from the Lord, authenticated it with the sign, same sign of the staff. 
So we've seen this before. Here, we see it again. God, through Moses and Aaron, performs, and noted exactly the same miraculous authenticating sign. That's key. Look at verse 10. The staff is cast down before Pharaoh, and it becomes a serpent. And this, as God has predicted, is by Pharaoh's request. Verse 9, look again. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Prove yourselves by working a miracle. In other words, Pharaoh says, prove it. I hear what you said. Prove it with a sign. And here we encounter something we all know very well. The token badge of unbelief. This is unbelief in neon lights. Prove it. Yes, Westmount's sign demands are always the stuff of unbelief and market in this passage, always the stuff of hardened hearts. The unbeliever, the unbelieving, the hardened, the hardened hearts always has to say, prove it. Prove it. And this demonstrates where Pharaoh's heart is at. And by the way, isn't that what God has said? This is exactly what you're going to get with Pharaoh. And we already know this. However, beloved, this demand here is both an instruction and a caution for us this morning. First, let's consider the instructive piece. And that is what we see most often. It's Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, was once asked why he doesn't believe in God. A very simple question posed to Richard Dawkins. And he said this, Because God does not make himself known, why doesn't this God give us a sign? You would expect nothing more or less from an atheist, right? Just give me a sign. Prove yourself. I'll only believe if I see you. That's the stuff of the unbeliever. Of course, I'm sure you know people who would utter something similar. I'm sure in a group like this, we all know someone who would say something like that. Is that not true? I'll only believe if you give me proof. Yes, such sentiments of unbelief are not a modern phenomenon. Jesus Christ encountered a pandemic of unbelief in the first century. You know it. And it was always exposed. Mark this. Think of the first century. Think of the Gospels. Unbelief was always exposed with what? A demand for signs. A demand for signs. Matthew 12. We have the accounts of Jesus instantly healing, miraculously healing a man with a withered hand. What about the one with a a demon in him, a demon-oppressed man? You come off these miraculous accounts. Again, lots of signs from the Christ. Those miraculous signs, again, authenticating who Jesus was, and then they're followed by this, right on the heels of those accounts. Matthew 12, 38. Then, the then marking, so after those, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, listen to this, we wish to see a sign from you. Teacher, we need to see a sign. In other words, there's all these signs he's just done, but we need to see a sign from you. That is so instructive. That reveals something. They just witness not just a sign, many signs, but they demand more. They want more. Secondly, well, first we would say they must be blind, and we're going to say much about that as we move forward. They must be blind, right? They're blind to something. Secondly, but here it is, signs didn't seem to matter, do they? And mark that, hang on to that, Christian. Signs don't matter. When it comes to true belief, signs don't matter. Hold on to that. As sign blindness, as you think about that with the Pharisees, unbelief is even more. We see it with the Pharisees, but listen, unbelief is most insidious when it is at work amongst those who follow Jesus. In John 6, 66, the apostle tells us that after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Many of his disciples, note this, turned back and no longer walked with him. Isn't that amazing? Many of his disciples, not the scribes and Pharisees, many of those professing to love Jesus and follow him and saw the signs of the loaves. Here it is. When they heard the teaching following those signs said, I'm out. That teaching is too hard for me. I'm out. And beloved, this is the caution now for us today. 
That is followers, those professing to love Jesus, who saw and experienced signs, but they're just not fond of the words. I like the big, spectacular stuff. I just don't like the hard stuff of the words. Do you know someone like that? The moment it's about the words and what Jesus actually taught, there's a problem with that. How often, beloved, after seeing signs, do those same people read words and have an issue? You see this in people whose spiritual life, whose whole spiritual life is built on claims of miraculous signs. Do you know someone like that? Their entire life is about sign after sign after sign, and God told me this, and I saw this and this. Their whole life is this house of cards of signs. And often they have to keep up that insatiable love of signs because often it masks a disdain for the words. Take away the love of signs, the constant demand for signs, and what are you left with? A hardened heart. God has stopped performing. His words are not enough. And here, beloved Christian, is where we see our caution. Please hear me this morning. Church, we are not a people of signs. We're not a people of signs. That's not who we are. We're not a gathering of people who are gathering because of proof that we all nodded our heads to a body of text and proof and said yes. The true believer is not gathered here today because evidence tipped the scales. No, listen to me, that's Pharaoh's way, the Pharisee's way, that's Egypt's practice, that's the way of the pagan, the sign economy. Give me a sign, I need a sign, I need proof, I can't believe without this laundry list of things that you need to validate. No, unlike Pharaoh Christian, unlike Egypt church, we are not a people of signs, we are a people of faith. We're a people of faith. And listen to me, faith knows nothing of signs. To the most famous skeptic, in one, one of the ones in Jesus' inner circle of 12, you know him very well, his name is Thomas, to the most famous skeptic of all time, saturating himself in unbelief at the time in John 20, 29, after he said, I will not believe until I see him, until I can poke holes in him. I will not believe. You've heard that? Famously, Jesus says this in response, John 20, 29, have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Right? Because you have your proof now? You believe because you have the proof? You can touch and feel me? Jesus goes on, blessed are those who have not seen and yet what? Have believed. Amen. That's right. And that is faith confirmed later in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Faith never says, give me a sign. And let us all heed this caution, especially in our current times, because Christian, maybe this is the wrestling Christian, you don't need a sign that tells you God is in control in 2020. You don't need a sign. God, just let me know that you're still in control. Christian, you don't need a sign in order for you to know the Lord. You don't need a sign. No, our sovereign Lord has already given you the faith to believe in Him. You have everything you need residing in your soul, in your regenerated heart, to believe in Him. And I don't know, beloved, what's more supernatural than that. To bring the dead to life. Pharaoh, of course, was not given faith, but instead a hardened heart. As a result, Pharaoh did not believe. Instead, he turns then to sight and evidence. His response to that sign from God, that staff turned serpent. Look at verse 11. What's his response? And Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Pharaoh says, look at that verse. I can do that. Watch me. Let me call on my power. You know what, Moses and Aaron? Watch what I do with my people. I can do that. Pharaoh then summons his wise men, his sorcerers and magicians, 
By the way, ancient courts had many of these types of individuals, many so-called experts in the secret arts, the dark arts. They were everywhere in ancient times. And this was not only common, by the way, this was the religion of the pagan world, the secret arts, the dark arts. Yes, throughout the ancient world, magic was inseparable from religion. They were interwoven. In Westmount, we still see this today. Mark this, mark it. Unbelieving religion loves the secret arts. Unbelieving religion loves the secret arts. False religion loves, here it is, have you heard this? The secret things, the hidden words, the spectacular things. That's the affinity of false religion. This is the lifeblood of the charlatan, the false prophet, the fake, and the imposter. Some are akin to magic arts, religion that claims to make one leg grow, really? Some have a built-in default, religion that just can't stop talking about signs. And some are much more subtle. Here's the caution, the religion of experience and sensations. This is the religion of I felt or I soaked or you can too or you should do this too. Insert the sensuality, the goosebumps, the raised hairs, the warm abdominal sensation, whatever it is, and it all claims to be from God. Listen to John, 1 John 4, 1. It says this, many, not some or one, many false prophets have gone out into the world. That means, beloved, there's tons. That was in the first century. How many more today? Many false prophets have gone out, and yes, we're a sea in them. Worse, worse today, because yes, it has amped up, it has exponentially grown. Worse, when you think about false teaching, false prophets, what you hear are claims to do just what the God-men did. Have you heard this? Jesus did it, so we can too. Jesus did it, so we can too. And look, church, that is precisely, does this not bring the text to life now in Exodus? Is that not what Pharaoh's doing? You did that? That's power? Come on, guys. I can do it too. And that is exactly what you hear today. Jesus did it. I can do it too. This is nothing more from Pharaoh, the king of the world at the time, than the old-fashioned, oh yeah, Moses, oh yeah, one-upmanship. Watch this. Watch my power. I can do it too. Now, I want you to note this, Westman. This is important. Isn't it interesting, by the way, what you see Pharaoh do and what you see the world do is poor attempts at just being a copycat, right? What you don't see is a counteraction, right? You just see copy action. You don't see them counteracting. If this was truly a battle of sovereign power, if there could be such a thing, what you would see is, wow, you turned that staff into a snake. Watch as I counteract and take that snake and make it back a staff. You turned our blood into, our water into blood. Watch as I turn it back and save our people. You had frogs drop from the sky. Watch as I clean it up. Interestingly, that's not what you see, is it? Some pale imitation of a copycat. And oh, how relevant that is today. And listen to me, you don't see it because they can't do it. Because such said power is false. I mean, whatever is happening here in Exodus 7 is somewhere between this. Here, here's the spectrum. It's somewhere between an elaborate smoke and mirrors, some ancient David Copperfield going on there, right? Some, some ancient magician doing his thing, a grand trick for the courts. And by the way, they would have had prep time. They're not performing this on the spot. They would have been called from some quarters Knowing already what they need to do, they would have been well prepared with the smoke and mirrors. So it's somewhere there or this, something even more terrible, demonic. Demonic. Allowed, note that, allowed by God for a greater purpose. And we need that reminder. Yes, remember, Satan and his demons have no power not granted by God. We've studied this extensively here at Westmount. Satan asks for Job. Satan asks for Peter. The demons ask for permission for the pigs. All of them are subordinate to Almighty God. Satan and the demons can do nothing without first asking God's permission. 
False power, demonic power, may always seem to be something, right? Always flashy. But upon closer inspection, as we'll see in a moment, it's not true power. Look at verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff, what? Swallowed up their staffs. I just love this. You just picture the court, right? Magic act or demonic spell. The sign and wonder done, and you can almost hear the peanut gallery. Ooh, ah, they did the same. You could just feel it, right? It's oozing out of this text. That is amazing. And beloved, whatever power those magicians had or pretended to have, don't you just love it? How do you close that scene? It's swallowed up. There's your visual by the sovereign power of God. Yes, God's all power over all powers. And church, in the wake of that digested staff, here's a few important takeaways. In fact, as you consider the whole scene here, you tell me if this is familiar. The created thing trying to create things. Why? To demonstrate their power and might. Does that sound familiar? The created thing tries to create things. Why? To demonstrate their own power and might. It's as old as Genesis 11. Wanted to build a tower to the heavens to show their power and might so they could be like God. To modern peoples attempting to build their own morality, their own ethics, their own reset. Beloved, what you see here with Pharaoh is the same old story. Mankind cannot accept the sovereign power of God, so they what? They need to pretend. And of course, like they always do, pale imitations always seem to pacify. Isn't that incredible? The pale imitation always seems to pacify. You know, I can't help, I have this image of my mind, right? You always wonder with the little ones, why sometimes they're more content with the box and not what's in it. Because pale imitations always will pacify those not on guard. Always. In the world and sadly amongst many branches of the professed church, this is the reality, folks. But it begs the question, maybe you're asking it now, why? How do we fall for such things? Why? Why do those claiming to follow Jesus fall for this stuff? Well, God's word has a very clear answer over and over again. Turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. We're going to look at a couple of passages here that I pray are very helpful for you. We have examined this letter a few times lately here at Westmount this year. The final words of Paul. And one of the things the Apostle Paul wants to say to his young son in the faith is proactive. This is not just reacting to what's going on in Ephesus. He says, this is what's coming, Timothy, and this is why you need to guard yourself. Note it. So let's pick it up in chapter 4. He says, this is what's coming. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So you see these final words. There's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I just want to pause there for a moment. What does Paul not say? I urge you, Timothy, to go and take those signs and wonders, to do all of these miraculous things. You know what we did as apostles, Timothy? I want you to go and do it. And when you hold your hand out, make sure it's like this. Grab the right oil. I want you to do it this way. Timothy, the, no. Do you, is that in here at all? No. These are the final letters, by the way. What does he focus on? There's actually one thing that's in view in verse 2, and what is it? Preach the word. And here in verse 3, 4, this is why you need to just stick to the word of God. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, that's restlessness, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Man, I feel like we could do uh, a month's worth of teaching just on that one verse. Is that not true? Is that not today? Verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You say this morning, why are people falling for this? God, in his proclamations, has decreed it. He said, this is what is going to happen. People will grow restless with the word of God. They will turn away, look at it very clear, 
turn from the truth and wander off into myths. That's one. Look at 2 Corinthians. Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Also a very heartfelt letter from the Apostle Paul. Go to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul here in this letter, Corinthian church, not Ephesian church in Timothy, he's defending his apostleship. Because why? And, and grab a hold of this in our age today. These so-called super apostles have flooded into the churches in the first century and they're putting on a show. They've got a lot of smoke and mirrors, and many are gravitating to that. And you get the sense the Corinthians are like, what's going on here? And Paul says, well, hang on a second. Let me just get a few things straight from the Lord. Let's pick it up in the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me, Corinthians, in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to the one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Don't you feel this? Paul's almost saying, I was there when the church started. I am the one who pointed you to the Christ, and now you're going after someone else, someone false. Verse 3, but I'm afraid, and look at this, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, look at the words, will be led astray from what? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Beloved, people say all the time, but they're very sincere in what they believe. The Word of God says that they are. But if you're sincere in what you believe, can you be led astray? The Word of God just said so. It says it right there. You will be led astray. Their thoughts are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then look at this. Here's the instruction. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, there are people coming with different teachings and different gospels. There are people coming that are not preaching the word. And what does Paul say, Corinthians? You accept it readily enough. I know mean, it's so relevant to today. It's just, again, just screaming off the page. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. It's like, I'm not going to try and match wits with them. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. The greatest false teachers and false prophets of our time are magnificent orators. You want to listen to them because they're captivating and engaging. And that's where you need to be careful, weighing what's coming out of their mouth. He says this, I'm not so knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. Now let's go down to verse 12 and wrap this. And what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Now, this is hard stuff here, but what is Paul saying? There's people that claim to be preaching the same Jesus, the same foundation, but they're not. Verse 13 for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. And look at the language, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This is cloak and dagger stuff, but even more. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Wow. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You hear so often, but look what they're doing. Look what they can do. The Word of God says, not only could it just be external, not based on the true Jesus and the Word of God and true knowledge, but even worse, look at the text, verse 14, 13 and 14. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That means it will come looking good, presenting well. People fight for these things that present well, but behind it, it's satanic. Church, whether it is mythical, false power, or disguised, deceiving power, whatever it is, I implore you to be on guard for it. You say, how do we know? Because they're sincere. Well, it's what we say at Westmont all the time, isn't it? Look at the book in your hands. Look at it. That's how you know. Weigh it. That's why we say weigh it. Any claim to knowledge or power, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything against the book. Test it against the book. I guarantee you, 
most of that conundrum of what to believe will go away when you test it against the true word of God. All right, one more. Sovereign over powers, and finally, sovereign over proclamations. It's tempted to call this sovereign over predictions because that's exactly what we're getting today. Everyone has a prediction about uh, data and stats and seasons and such, but right out of the text, you will see proclamations. The Lord is sovereign over them. As we're back in Exodus, go to verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So after all of these accounts, we have the staff to serpent. We have this interchange where the magicians uh, have done the same thing, but yet God in his sovereignty has had Aaron's staff swallow up their so-called staffs. After all of that, still the text says... Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then look at this. Don't miss this. Verse 13. Just as the Lord said. That's right. That was God's proclamation. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 21. Nothing's changed with what he's proclaimed. And again, repeated later, earlier in this chapter, chapter 7, verse 3. Clear proclamations that, as we see in this account, came to pass exactly. God also proclaimed rightly what Pharaoh would say. Remember, now we revisit verse 9. Look again at the start of verse 9, remember? When Pharaoh says to you, God did not say if Pharaoh says to you or Pharaoh might say to you, God proclaimed exactly what would happen. And we've seen, as we've seen in this account, it does. When God speaks, it comes to be. And you know, as you consider the proclamations we've seen thus far, they really are astounding. I mean, God's proclamations and his fulfillments, by the way, are astounding and can only be from one that is mighty. Pharaoh, of course, wants to be mighty, the power wannabe. He's made proclamations. Remember the big one back in chapter 5, lest we forget? Look at the beginning of chapter 5. Do you remember this one in the first confrontation? This was Pharaoh's bold proclamation in his power. Pharaoh's reply in chapter 5, verse 2, I will not let Israel go. That would, that, that's it from Pharaoh. I'm not letting these people go. That's his bold proclamation. Now listen, I hate to be a spoiler, but I will. You don't get past chapter 12 before you realize he was dead wrong. You can have all the, the smoke behind him he wants. He's just dead wrong. Pharaoh, I don't care how big and powerful you are. In ancient times, Pharaoh, it doesn't matter how much you did or could do in power. Pharaoh, it doesn't matter who you roll out and how many people are afraid of you. Pharaoh, the reality is you're wrong. You're wrong. In fact, to put it pointedly, Pharaoh, your so-called power was really not power at all. Yes, even, and mark this, beloved, even the most powerful man in the world at the time was impotent. That impotence will be set dramatically against God's omnipotence. In the new year, this is where we'll be, we will see over and over again, beloved, this is no battle. There's no battle here going on between God and Pharaoh. This is almighty God saying, so that they will know that I am the Lord. That is because God said it would be. And that is because almighty God in his sovereignty when he speaks, it comes to pass every time. And that is because God is sovereign over proclamations. Listen, bold ones, quiet ones, controversial ones, God is sovereign over the proclamations of the proud and the proclamations of the humble. He's sovereign over all of it. And we take now these considerations of God's sovereignty to the table this morning. And as you do, I want you to consider something Bear with me these final few minutes as you reflect on our study. I want you to imagine someone you know walking around. Maybe you know someone like this, someone that would say, this is going to happen, that will happen. Do we know some of those folks that are very confident about the things they say? This is going to happen. You mark my words, so-and-so, this is going to happen. And of course, we chuckle because we all know folks like that, and it's amusing. Why? Because often they're wrong, Right? They continue to come back and say, you mark my words, I'm telling you, you know, we get around dinner tables during Thanksgiving and Chris says every family member's got one of those, right? 
just like, oh yeah, this is how it's going to be. And it is amusing, and maybe for some, sadly amusing. Because we laugh and we have a moment, but they're wrong, right? They're wrong. Sure, you throw enough stuff at the wall, something will stick, but most times they're wrong. And listen, we're not even talking about Nostradamus here, who people would like to say he kind of knew, no, no, Nostradamus was wrong, really more often than not. He was wrong. And church, I want to ask you something. If such a person existed, I mean, just the Uncle Bob or whoever it is, who spoke and every word came to pass. Let's say we had someone in our midst here at Westmount, and they were just that guy, right? Every time you're like, wow, I need to go to so-and-so because everything he is saying comes to pass. I mean, it's eerie. Just imagine. I just want you to stop. Bear with me. If that person existed at Westmount, that human being would you not be going up to that person saying, hey, man, I want to know what you think about what's coming up next. Hey, man, you, listen, can I ask you a question? I got some personal stuff here. Would you not do that? Of course you would. Because you'd be like, this guy's never wrong. And I mean, he's just never wrong, ever. I'm going to throw all my stuff against him. And let me ask you something. If that guy was in here and you just had then this body of evidence in your own life, you're like, man, this guy's striking gold, eureka, jackpot every time. Could you trust him? Would you trust that guy? Would you say, man, I'm banking on this one? Would you? Of course you would. We do with far less. We put all our trust into someone like that. Of course we do. Well, the reality that 2020 has proven, and I would submit to you all of human history before that, is the world contains nobody like that. Is that not true? Everyone's made a bold prediction in 2020, and let me ask you something. Whoa, what of those? We have, Westmount, a lot of pharaohs today. We got a lot of pharaohs making a lot of proclamations that just turn out to be wrong, and wrong, and still wrong. Well, Christian, you know one who came into this world and made this proclamation. You know these words. We studied them in Mark. Mark 10. This is the third time, by the way, he made this proclamation in the Gospels. They're on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Do you hear that? Jesus has a proclamation to make. This is what he says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. That is an astounding proclamation, isn't it? We gather together here at Westmount as a local church because all of that came to pass. Just as he said. We gathered the table this morning. We remember that delivery, that condemnation, that mocking, that spitting, that flogging, that killing, that burying, and of course we remember what? That rising again on the third day, as we will be when he comes. That proclaimed and fulfilled resurrection, church, that's your hope. No matter how strong death feels in 2020, I know many of you are with me. It feels strong this year, doesn't it? Death feels strong. Death feels strong. But listen, beloved, death does not win. Death does not win. Why? You say, well, that sounds like a lot of wishful thinking. Well, let's go to per back to perfect proclamation. That Jesus, with all of his proclamations coming true, had one more thing to say in John 11. And we have looked at this this year already. May I remind us all, John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is a proclamation. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Proclaimed word. And then Jesus said this, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I invite the ushers to come forward now. And I want you to consider that question from Jesus. Do you believe this? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not die. That this temporal death that we all will face will not be the end, 
that you will raise again to eternal life. Do you believe this? Two things this morning. If you do, and you're here, and you do believe this, and your life uh, is committed to following him and calling him Lord, we invite you to partake with us. Please take from the ushers, partake with us as we do this together. But if you do not, if you're resisting this Jesus, if you're skeptical about this Jesus, if you're still a rebel to this Jesus, we ask you not, just let the elements pass by because they have no meaning to you. Because what they represent has no efficacy in your life. But listen to me, today they can. Today you can say, when Jesus says to you, do you believe this? You can say, yes, for the first time in my life, I believe this. I am scared, I'm afraid, I know who I am, and my God, I know who you are. And I repent of my sins. I repent of my way, and I place my faith and trust in you for not only this life, but for the life to come. Today can be that day for you. And then you, of course, gladly partake with us. And we're going to do that together. Whoever you are today in Christ is part of the body of Christ. We're going to take this together, so hang on to it. And we are going to partake together as the ushers continue to hand it out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we prepare our hearts to partake from you, Lord, we recognize that we, especially, Father, if we're being honest this morning, whether it is before you or when you regenerated our life, have wrestled with the theme and reality of unbelief. And God, we pray that you would take our hearts this morning, wherever they may be, as we remember and reflect at the table on this sacrifice, and that, God, you would give us what you gave us at salvation. Give us, Lord, the grace and mercy of faith for this day. And God, we plead that as we look to come together and remember you. In Christ's name, amen.